And my text is found in the verse 12. The Apostle Paul, or no, sorry, in the verse 11, Paul says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learnt in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Let us unite together in prayer. Our loving Father in heaven, we're so thankful that we are not waiting to hear thy voice thunder from the sky. We're not relying upon our forefathers to have faithfully heard the word and transmitted it orally uh, in a reliable fashion. But we thank thee that we have a book, a precious book, a supernatural book, a divine book. A book that is of heavenly origin. A book that comes directly from the mouth of God. And we thank thee that in this book are the words of life. Words of wisdom. Words of peace. Words of perfection. That are able to change us and transform us. And Lord as we open the book now. We don't do it flippantly and we don't do it casually. We do it with reverence and awe because these are the living articles of our God. This is the living word of the living God given to us. We need it, Lord. We need thy word to come to us right now with power to change us and transform us to mold us in thine image. So come and speak to every one of us now. Leave the stamp of thy divine breath upon our very body. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my text for this morning is verse 11, and in particular where the Apostle Paul says, I have learnt in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now let's begin with a little background as to why Paul has penned these words to the church at Philippi. One of the reasons that Paul wrote to this church at Philippi was to praise them for their support of him, their practical support of him. We see that in verses 10, 15 and 16 of this chapter. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. And in verse 15, now ye Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. And then in verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity. So Paul is thanking and praising this church for their practical support of him as he ministered the gospel of Christ. But... That had not always been the case. In chapter 2 verse 30, the Apostle Paul had to speak of their lack of service towards me. Now the church at Philippi was guilty to a small measure of not supporting the work of the Apostle Paul by practical means whenever he was in prison at Rome. Now the Apostle Paul had left full-time employment to uh, go and preach the gospel on a full-time basis 
And it was ordained by God that this was a work which was to be supported by the church. Matthew 10, the Lord Jesus Christ sent the disciples out to preach. And he said, provide neither gold, nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor script for journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. Now the church at Philippi had been guilty of not supporting Paul fully uh, throughout his ministry, but they weren't the only ones who were guilty of that. Paul had to write to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 9.14, and he had to tell them, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So this is the context in which Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. Now speaking of the church at Philippi, it seems very unlikely that they had no desire to support the Apostle Paul. It seemed that they wanted to support him, but they lacked the opportunity to support him. And perhaps we could say they were maybe not as zealous at getting the support to him as they should have been. That was until Epaphroditus risked his life to bring support to Paul from the church at Philippi. We read of that in chapter 2, verse 30. And Paul acknowledges this in chapter 4, verse 10. But in this verse, chapter 11, Paul is addressing why he wants their support. He says, not that I speak in respect of want. He's not saying, I want your support. He's not saying, I'm being covetous. I'm desiring that you send money to me so that I have an abundance and a good pension plan. He's not saying any of that. He doesn't covet their money. He knows that he serves the God who provides for his children. And provides for the work of the gospel. After all the Lord sent to Elijah. Or he sent Elijah to a brook for three years. And he fed him and nourished him there. Paul knows all this. And he knows that if the church at Philippi doesn't send support. The Lord would move others to do it. But the main reason that Paul wants to see support. Arriving from this church is found in verse 17. He says not because I desire a gift. But I desire fruit that may abound to your account. That's why Paul wants to see uh, this church uh, diligent and faithful in supporting him. He wanted to see the continued spiritual growth from these believers. Yes, the church at Philippi had been faithful in supporting him at the start of his ministry in Macedonia. Whenever churches were springing up, whenever the gospel was flourishing. But now... Now that Paul is under house arrest in Rome, now that the church is facing that wave of persecution, now the Christians are the outcasts of society and many people are slandering and mocking the apostle Paul. Paul's wondering, does this church at Philippi still stand with me? Is their heart still burning with the, the flame of the gospel to make Christ known amongst the nations? Or is this a church that has been affected by the world? Is this a church that has uh, afraid to stand with me in this age? Is that why they're not supporting me? And maybe that's the thought that Paul had. They're not supporting me because they don't stand with me anymore. So Paul didn't want their gifts. He wanted to see that they were still in fellowship with the Lord. And still in fellowship with him. But why did Paul not want their support? Paul's under arrest, house arrest in Rome. We generally understand that uh, he wasn't in a prison cell, but he didn't have the liberty to go and work to support himself. No welfare state in those days to support him either. 
So there was a need for Paul to have practical support from his fellow believers. But in the latter part of verse 11, Paul demonstrates that he doesn't get anxious about these things. He doesn't become distressed. He doesn't become worried about some of these practical matters of life because he says, I have learnt in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. The Apostle Paul is writing here under inspiration. The Holy Spirit has moved him to write this for the church at Philippi, but also for the church at all ages. And Paul is speaking that he has learnt and whatsoever state he is to be content. Now this isn't something that is written for Paul to boast of. This isn't Paul boasting. This is Paul describing the spiritual state in which he is. As a lesson for the church at Philippi to follow. But a lesson for the church in all the ages to follow as well. Can you and I really echo that same sentiment of the Apostle Paul. Can we really put our hand up today and say, I too can say that whatsoever state I am in, I have learned to be content. I venture to say that most of us will probably struggle to do that. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote a book and he called it the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Why did he call it the rare jewel of Christian contentment? Because so few find the rare jewel of Christian contentment. You and I will have different times in our lives, times of prosperity, times of poverty. We will have times of great success and we'll have times of failure. We will have times of good health. We'll have times of illness and sickness. How are we to cope through all these times? Well, I think the Apostle Paul gives us an example that we are to emulate here. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Four headings for you here this morning as we think of Paul's contentment. First of all, notice Paul's contentment through experience. Through experience. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In this chapter, uh, Paul details to the church at Corinth the physical and emotional sufferings that he has gone through in his ministry as an apostle. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. He says, Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day have I been in the deep, that is the waters, the sea, the ocean, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. So here the, uh, oh, in verse 27, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So if anybody had a romantic view of what it was to be an apostle, the apostle Paul has just shown you there that it wasn't a uh, lovely, dreamy life. In fact, it was a very um, a miserable life in terms of the physical sufferings that he went through. 
195 stripes Paul received upon his body. Never mind all the other sufferings that we have just read through there. One time Paul was taken and outside a city and he was stoned and they stopped stoning him because they thought he was dead. Such was the physical sufferings that Paul endured. Now sometimes people can think that they're, um, they're suffering and well, we, we do suffer to a smaller degree whenever we are uh, called a name for being a Christian or somebody makes fun of us or, or intimates something in that sense. But whenever we look at the sufferings that the Apostle Paul had and whenever we look at what he went through and through after all that he could still say I have learned to be content. Can you and I not say that we could do with learning something of that contentment with the sufferings that we go through in our life? Uh, But more than the physical sufferings, there was also the emotional sufferings. Verses 28 and 29 of that chapter, Paul went on to say, Besides those things that are without, which come upon me daily, the care of all the churches, who is weak, and am I not weak, who is offended, and I burn not the Things that come upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul has visit, had visited many churches. He had met many believers. And as we see from the epistles that he wrote, many of these churches had problems. And many of these churches had serious issues, theological issues, moral issues. Paul was having to deal with all these. He says, these cares come upon me daily. And he put these cares, these emotional, psychological, spiritual cares in the same category as his physical sufferings. Because sometimes the suffering of the mind can be every bit as hard as the suffering of the body. And Paul knew that. And so it can be, dear friend, we might not suffer physically in the body, but we may suffer in the mind. We may suffer emotionally. We may suffer spiritually. But the Apostle Paul says, through it all, I have learned to be content. So through all his experiences, he learned to be content. Now you and I may never go through all the experiences that the Apostle Paul went through. Because of all, all of our pathways are different in life. But we should still have the same resolution as Paul. I have learned to be content. So Paul learned contentment through experience. Secondly, he learned contentment through time. Rough calculations lead us to believe that Paul had been converted for about 26 years by the time that he had penned these words. The contentment that he possessed was something that had matured over time. Sometimes in our Christian experiences, God would have us to go through trials, but only when he knows that we are ready for them, only when he knows that we will uh, have sufficient grace to endure and keep our contentment with him. I don't think that we master contentment the day that we become a Christian. I believe it's linked to sanctification and it is a a, a continual progress. It should be something that grows. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. So over time, Paul learnt contentment. And we can look at characters in the Bible who matured in grace over time. We can think of Moses as a young man. 
uh, whenever he saw the Egyptians mishandling the Hebrews, what did he do? He was filled with anger. He was filled with violence. He attacked the Egyptian. He killed him. Fast forward to later on in Moses' life. And, and how do we read of Moses? Moses the meek. In fact, if you started reading the latter part of Moses' life and then went back and read the first part, you wouldn't believe that Moses the meek would actually do that awful deed of killing that Egyptian. But that was his growth in grace over the years. And Christians are those who should be growing in grace. We should be growing in contentment as the years pass by. So Paul learned contentment, first of all, through experience. He learned it, secondly, through time. Thirdly, Paul learned contentment through divine providence. You and I know, I trust that we know, that God orders all the affairs of all men. Therefore, there is not a state, a condition, a situation in which you and I find ourselves in that God is not in control of. We believe that God sustains everything in the world. The birds in the sky, the grass that grows in the field. God orders all those events. He also orders all the events of our lives as well. We perhaps see this best demonstrated in the life of Job in the Bible. There we read of Job and everything was going well with Job, so it seems. And the devil came before God and he said to God, um, there's one man that I haven't been able to attack because you've put a hedge about him. And God gave the devil permission to go and attack Job. But there were limitations. He wasn't allowed to take his life. So the devil went and he had a really good go at Job. He killed his children. He took away his riches. He took away his health and all too. He left him a wife to be a miserable comforter, but he took everything else away. And there, the, uh, through it all, the devil's plan was to try and get Job to curse God. But even though Job was suffering, even though in his body, even though he was sorrowful for the loss of his family, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't curse God. God orders all the affairs of men. So there isn't a circumstance in your life, dear friend, that God is not aware of and that God is not in control of. And through that, we should be content knowing that God is in control of these things. Paul knew that God was sovereign in his life. He knew that God was sovereign in his imprisonment. He knew that there were reasons for him to be there. He knew that there had been reasons why some of the other apostles had been martyred before him. He knew that God was sovereign regarding his need for food and clothing. And he committed those things to God. He knew that God was sovereign in his failing eyesight. By this stage in his life, we believe that Paul was nearly blind. In fact, some of the epistles, he says, you see what a large letter I write with my own hand. Some, Paul had dictated the letter. Somebody else had wrote it, but Paul signed it at the end. Paul didn't complain about these things. Sometimes we can be prone to do that can think of Jacob in the Old Testament. Whenever he heard of the, the, the trouble that had come upon him and his family, he said, all these things are against me. He complained that uh, the, the, uh, the affairs of life were working against him as if God was not in control. Well, just as Paul knew this sovereignty of God and in all the matters of his life, should, should we not know this and surrender and, uh, to it as well? Should we not have contentment whenever we remember that God is in control of all the affairs of, of our life this week and next week and the years to come? 
Sometimes we maybe feel aggrieved in our circumstances. Sadly, this causes some people to question God's dealings with them. Sadly, some lose faith. They turn away from following God. They say, well, God's not helping me. God's not with me in this trial. God isn't answering the way I want him to. So therefore, I give up on God. And they stop coming to church. Or some people give up on God, but they still come to church. But they stop praying. And they stop reading their Bible. And they're turned to a bitter disposition. Because God isn't doing things the way they want him to. They lose their contentment. They lose their faith. Well, does Scripture not say, and do we not believe? Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that some things work together for good. To some of them. No. All things work together for good. Everything in our life. Every breath that we take. Every action that uh, God brings our way. God has ordained for our good. Now sometimes we can't see that. Until after the event. But God means it. For our good. So Paul learned contentment through experience, through time, through divine providence. And fourthly, he learned contentment regardless of external circumstances. Paul had reasons to worry. Sometimes we like to worry. But Paul had reasons to worry, perhaps more than any other individual. Paul was in prison in Rome. He had seen some of his uh, fellow brethren martyred for the cause of the gospel. After all the beatings he received, he was at the mercy of the Romans. Paul effectively had the sword hanging above his head in a metaphorical sense, and one day it would come down upon him. But he wasn't anxious. He wasn't worried. He himself had stood by when Stephen was allowed to be stoned to death. But Paul disregarded all of these concerns. He wasn't worried about the Romans. He wasn't worried about the Jews. He wasn't worried about the economy, the political situation in Israel. He wasn't worried about Rome or the world. He was content. I have learnt in whatsoever state I am to be content. There's external circumstances, Paul says, beyond me that I can't control. So why would I bother myself with them? Now there's many external circumstances that will cause you and I anxiety. The rising interest rates is one that will cause us great anxiety. When our mortgage payments might double um, in a matter of years, those things might cause us anxiety and stress. But we can't change them. We might write to the Bank of England and say, could you please bring them down? But they're not going to change them just because of us. There's external circumstances in life that you and I cannot control. Worrying isn't going to change them. We should learn to be content. Well, some words of application in finish. How does contentment come? Notice Paul does not say, God give me great contentment. Well, certainly God has given contentment. But Paul says, I have learnt. So this is a duty, a responsibility that we are to engage in. This is uh, certainly God assists in this. The work of sanctification is uh, performed by the Holy Spirit. But this is not something that is beyond us. This is not something that we cannot control. Paul says, I have learnt. Therefore, if Paul has learnt this, we 
can learn this also. It is not something we obtain the day we become Christians. Perfect contentment. Of course not. Neither is it a gift exclusive to a certain proportion of Christians. It's not just the, the holy people, the people who have miraculous spiritual gifts. They get contentment. No. It is something that each and every Christian can have. But most importantly, why can we have contentment? Why can you and I in this life have contentment in our spiritual walk with God? Well, we can have contentment because of what Christ has done. Dear friend, the biggest problem that you and, I ever, you and I ever had was the problem of our sin. Our sin alienated us and separated us from God. But the Lord Jesus Christ came to deal with the biggest problem you'll ever have in life. Your biggest problem in life will never be money. It'll never be your health. It'll never be your family. It'll never be your work. It'll never be your country. It'll never be war. The biggest problem is sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to deal with that problem of sin that you and I have. He came to restore us back to God. He came to reconcile us to God. So the biggest problem you've ever had in life, Christ dealt with at the cross of Calvary when he took our sin upon his own body and he shed his blood for the washing away of our sin. So dear friend, the biggest problem that you've ever had in life has been dealt with. You could never deal with it yourself. Christ has dealt with it for you upon the cross. So if Christ has dealt with our massive problem, a problem that would keep us out of heaven, a problem that would take us to hell for all eternity, can we not then learn to be content with some of the smaller problems and issues that we face in life? Now, I'm not downplaying some of the things that we face in life. They are real and they are painful. They're agonizing and they cause us many tears. But if Christ has dealt with the massive problem, then can we not trust him for some of those smaller problems as well? So what is contentment? Contentment is peace in our souls, knowing that we are safe and secure in God's love, regardless of our circumstances. The Lord Jesus said, no man can pluck them out of my hand. We are safe and secure in our salvation, regardless of the circumstances around us, the world may turn against us. We might become the most hated person in the world because of our views on, on social issues or moral issues. We might be the scourge of the BBC. Every newspaper might write against us. We might be sacked from our job. The bank might close our bank account and so forth. But we can rest in the love of God and be content there. Paul's contentment was learnt in prosperity and poverty. He said that in verse 12. I know both how to be abased, I know how to abound. Uh, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. We can be content, regardless of the circumstances of today or tomorrow. Now happiness, happiness is different from contentment. Our happiness can fluctuate depending upon our circumstances depending upon our caffeine intake at any given point of the day, given the weather we've had a, a fight with the wife or burnt the dinner or broken a leg, our happiness, that can go up and down temporarily. But our contentment rests upon God. And God uses contentment for our sanctification to deliver us from temptation. If we're content in God, content 
in our relationship with him, the desires for temptation will decrease. Likewise, covetousness. We live in an age now where covetousness is an extreme problem. Young people need to have the latest fashion. They need to have the latest technology, the latest gadgets and gizmos. Um, I remember whenever I was at school, um, you were doing well if your if your dad um, got you a car. I remember having a a really old Ford Fiesta of no parts steer, and it was one of those old uh, ones that you had to turn the wheel uh, about twenty times to get it around a corner. But um, uh, and outside our school was all old cars parked like that. But I was driving past the school that I went to one time, and you wouldn't believe the, the flash cars that are parked outside uh, the school nowadays, cars that, that I certainly couldn't afford, let alone uh, the young people at the school. But sadly, covetousness is a big problem. Needing to have the latest, needing to keep up with the fashion, keep up with the trend, keep up with the world. Covetousness will rob us of our contentment. If we're content, we'll not be covetous. But you may be saying, well, I really struggle to be content. I really, I wouldn't even know where to begin. But where do we begin? We begin in prayer. If this is something we struggle with, Lord, I struggle with contentment. I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm uh, concerned day and night about different things. Well, we take it to the Lord in prayer. I make it our prayer. Now, there's some things in life we should never be content about. We should never be content with sin in our life. We should never be content with uh, a a lack of a a, a spiritual life. If we're not reading our Bible, we shouldn't be content with that. If we're not uh, having communion with God in the place of prayer, we shouldn't be content with that. We shouldn't be content um, uh, also with um, perhaps a lack of love. Uh, for others to reach out to other souls with the gospel. If we don't have a, a burden and a concern for our neighbor, if we're not able to weep over them in the prayer meeting, we shouldn't be content with that. These are things that we should uh, not be content about. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not converted. Maybe you're saying, well, I have no interest in these spiritual things. But you maybe acknowledge that you're not content. You maybe move from one thing to another, one form of entertainment, one form of amusement, and you jump from one to another, filling your life with things that you're hoping will bring you contentment. Let me tell you, dear friend, there's nothing in this world will content you. Nothing at all. No amount of entertainment, no no amount of worldly pleasures will ever bring you contentment with God. The only one who will ever bring you contentment is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the key to contentment. The Son of God who left the glories of heaven to come to this world. He gives contentment to his beloved people. So dear friend, Paul, I'll finish with this. Paul summarized it perfectly when he wrote to the the Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. He said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That is where contentment comes, dear friend, looking on to Jesus.